Lady Mystery first captivated my heart. I was probably five or six years old, and I uh, read a book called The Yellow House Mystery. It was the third in the famous Boxcar Children series. And after that, the other 34 that were available to me in the early 90s, I consumed in probably about as many weeks. From there, I moved on from the mixed-up files of Mrs. F Basil E. Frankweiler to the Weston game and ultimately into some more sophisticated mystery writers like Robert Louis Stevenson and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. But you know what I really love about 2023? Is you don't even have to open a book anymore. You just turn on the TV and you will find all kinds of different mysteries in all sorts of different settings. Whether you find yourself on the Lost Island or in one of the dozen CSI precincts scattered around the country, there is no shortage of good mysteries available to us on screens both large and small. That's because people just love a good mystery, don't they? They love it so much, in fact, that mystery has become a multi-billion dollar industry each year. We enjoy the puzzles and the problems that mysteries present to us. There's something that's intensely satisfying for many people about trying to piece together those clues and, and analyze characters and motives. The thrill that we get from seeing one of those leading characters in a life or death situation gives us an almost drug-like kick of adrenaline and something we can enjoy from the absolute safety of our own sofa or lawn chair. People love a good mystery. But can I ask, um, do you think you would enjoy it very much if the mystery novel or series that you were involved with ended and never really answered any of its big questions? If it just left you as puzzled and perplexed at the end as you were at the beginning? Maybe that's actually happened to you before. Perhaps you found yourself very invested in some television series and that latest season of it ended on the agonizing cliffhanger right before the big reveal and then in the middle of the summer the network decided to cancel it on you and you never got to find out who was behind it all or what happened to the main character or how justice was ultimately served in the end. That can be an intensely unsatisfying, maybe even rage-inducing experience for some of us. Yes, we love a good mystery, but we also want some answers, right? We need to be able to put our minds to rest. And when we don't have a tidy conclusion, we just kind of have that unfinished business running through our heads over and over again. Well, today, we are discussing a mystery, a mystery found in Scripture. We saw it way back there at the very beginning in Genesis 1. Jesus introduced us to that mystery yet again in our gospel reading from Matthew 28. And now, in our reading from 2 Corinthians 13, we see this great mystery of God once more. As we read, Finally, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And the mystery, of course, that we are talking about today is that of the Trinity the triune God. 
Now, that word trinity is one that you will actually never find in Scripture. It's a Latin term, actually, which summarizes what the Bible teaches concerning God. Literally, it means three-one. Not thirty-one. That would even be simpler. Three and also one. One, yet somehow still three. Now, I'm going to put my cards on the table for you right away today here. Uh, If you showed up this morning hoping that I was going to explain the mystery of the Trinity to you in a way that you could finally grasp and comprehend so that you could leave here saying, oh, now I get it, you're going to be sorely disappointed. That is simply something that our finite minds cannot do. doesn't mean, of course, that plenty of people haven't tried over the years, Some people have tried to use the picture of an egg to explain the Trinity, how an egg has a yolk, a white, and a shell, and yet it's not three eggs, it's just one egg. St. Patrick famously used a shamrock in trying to explain the Trinity to recent converts in Ireland, picking one of those leaves that has three parts to it, but is still just one leaf. Really, this doesn't work, though. All it does is reduce God into thirds. One-third Father, one-third Son, and one-third Holy Spirit. And that's not what we find in Scripture. And so in more recent years, people have tried to use the various states of matter. You can find an H2O molecule, for example, as a solid, a liquid, or a gas. But really all this accomplishes is reducing God to a being who switches back and forth really quickly between roles as needed. And that's not the God that we find in Scripture either. Every human attempt to explain this mystery has fallen and will fall dreadfully short of adequately expressing what Scripture does concerning the Trinity. That he is three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and each one is distinct from the other. The Father is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. And yet all three are fully 100% God. Not just in the way that like three different gods might be pulling together as one, though, in the way that a a football coach might use that terminology in reference to the 11 men on the field pulling together as one. That's not what we find either. No, there really truly actually is one, not three, one God. And while we can express that truth, as Scripture expresses it. We simply cannot wrap our minds around the logistics of how something can be three and one. It's a mystery, and it's frankly one that we can't answer and explain. But I want to tell you today that that that's okay. The first reason why that's okay is because it actually means that God is so much bigger and so much more complex than you and I are. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says of himself, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Like, we shouldn't expect 
to understand everything about God and his ways any more than you expect your dog to understand why you do your taxes every spring. And I got to say, that's, that's really a very, very good thing. Because if God could fit into the tiny little box of my brain and my experience, he really wouldn't be much of a great God at all, would he? The second reason why it's okay that, that this mystery exists is because even though we may not understand the how of the Trinity, when this triune God does reveal himself to us in Scripture, he does so in a way that he provides us with answers to so many of life's other great mysteries. These things that have puzzled and perplexed humankind from the beginning, God brings us a solution to all of the most important, most perplexing ones. Now, there are so many we could talk about. There are so many worth discussing. But today, as we look at these verses, we are going to focus on three. Three of these mysteries that have puzzled humankind and even troubled humankind, as well as God's three great answers to them. So let's jump right away here into mystery number one. How can I deal with my guilt? It's a question that has arisen in every human heart throughout history because the reality is that every single one of us does things that we know are wrong. Even if you like to think sometimes that you do an awful lot that is right, if we are giving an honest assessment of ourselves, there is also just as much backstabbing, cruelty, selfishness, and godlessness, if not more. And as we look at the people of the past, and as we look out at the people of the present, even at ourselves, we see that there are an awful lot of different ways that people have tried to handle that guilt on their own. Archaeologists have uncovered small cities worth of pyramids and temples in which animal or even human sacrifices occurred in the desperate attempts of some cultures to atone for their guilt before the gods. There are so many today who think that they are going to pay back that debt of their guilt, maybe even accrue some positive credit in God's eyes by their good works or their religious rituals. In an increasingly atheistic culture like the one we live in, there are plenty of people who try to deal with their guilt by telling themselves and others that they should just ignore it or at least find a way to justify the actions which lead to that guilt. And when that doesn't work, people will turn to substances or maybe even just to hours of mindless entertainment to drown out that voice of guilt that they hear inside of them. When we look at the people of the past and the present, though, one thing becomes abundantly clear, which is that we really have no idea how to deal with our guilt. And there's a very good reason for that. It's because we can't. We are powerless to go back and undo the wrongs and the hurts that we inflict on this world and its people any more than a murderer can go back and undo killing somebody, even if he is really, really sorry for it and tries really, really hard to turn his life around in the future. 
So then what's our answer? It's what we saw in the first part of verse 14. That answer is found in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if there is an even bigger mystery in the Bible than that of the Trinity, it's this, that the infinite, omnipotent God who holds the boundless universe in his hands confined himself to the flesh of a man and became one of us. Hungry like us, tired like us, sad and frustrated like us, just not sinful or guilty like us. But then even though he had no guilt of his own to speak of, he became guilty. As he took all of your guilt, as he took all my sin willingly upon himself. And even more than that, as he took that punishment that we all deserved for that guilt and that sin onto his own shoulders, bearing it with him to a cross where he suffered and died for it. The perfect happiness and eternal joy then that Jesus did deserve and which you and I did not, that is what he now gives us in exchange for our guilt. And so we can consider this first mystery solved. Not because we can handle and deal with that guilt on our own in any sort of satisfactory way, but because Jesus has taken care of your guilt for you. And that means we can move on to mystery number two. What's the purpose of my life? It's the question that the graduating high school senior asks right alongside the 90-year-old homebound senior. It's the question that the young mother who isn't quite feeling the satisfaction she thought children would bring asks at the same time as the working woman who wonders what good her career ultimately serves. What's the purpose of my life? Why am I here? How can I make a difference? Just as was the case with our first mystery, people have tried to answer that question in all kinds of different ways at all sorts of different times. Many philosophers would simply throw up their hands and say, well, the purpose of life must just be to enjoy as much happiness and pleasure as we can during our short time here. Others will maybe look to accomplishing, achieving something, a lasting legacy that they can leave so that even after they're gone, people will remember them. Right? Building the big skyscraper in a major metropolitan area or maybe becoming a powerful politician. Lots of others today claim that the purpose of life is found in romantic love or in family or perhaps in the lifelong accumulation of knowledge. It's a list that could go on and on and on. And it's also a list that an ancient king of Israel named Solomon looked to in his pursuit of purpose and meaning. You see, Solomon reigned over Israel in what was probably their most prosperous period in history. There was peace and wealth and abundance throughout his land, and so he turned his mind and his heart toward this pursuit of answering that question. What's the purpose of life? And he looked for it in all the same sorts of places that people look for it today. Do you know what his assessment was, though, looking back on it all as an older man? In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, he called it all meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And that Hebrew word that we translate as meaningless 
is literally like a fog or vapor. And like a morning mist under a hot sun, it ultimately all fades away to nothing. But with God the Father's presence in our lives, we both receive and distribute something which gives our lives true purpose each and every day. And it's love. The Greek term for this type of love is the word agape. It's the same sort that we find in the famous John 3.16 passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It is unconditional love. And just as the Father shows us this unconditional love, so much so that he even sent his one and only son for us, he now calls on us and gives us as our purpose to show this same love ourselves. First, to love him as he deserves to be loved and as he tells us he wants to be loved. To glorify him with our hearts and hands and voices, with our entire lives and being. To respect and adore and trust him as kids do for a dad who has given them everything. To honor and obey him because we know that this good father would never ask his children to do anything that was bad for them. But then also to love the people that the father has put into our lives. And to do so as he has done for us. Agape. With no strings attached. Loving them by doing what is best for them. Not because of what we have or might receive from them, but oftentimes in spite of the sin and the selfishness that we have received from their hands. That's the love that the Father shows you and me, and that is the love that he now gives us as our purpose in life. So our second mystery is also solved. My purpose is to love God and love others. And that means that we can see our final mystery. Where's my life going? If love is the goal, excuse me, if love is the purpose, what's the goal? Where will I end up? Maybe most commonly asked, what's going to happen to me when I die? Now, I know it might not seem like it at first glance, and I promise that I will explain this to you, but the answer to that question is actually found in what the Spirit brings. Fellowship. Sorry if it feels like I'm pelting you with biblical language stones today, uh, but that word fellowship in Greek is, is the word koinonia, and it means community, a shared or common experience with others. And that community, that fellowship, is something that we in fact do have right now, and yet it also serves as a foretaste, a foretaste of community and fellowship that are still coming in mind-blowing measure. And maybe I can explain it with this illustration. Um, imagine that you are on a road trip to a wedding with four of your best friends. Already right there in the car, you are experiencing community, right? The jokes and the laughter, the conversations, both light and serious, the snacks, the soda, it is a shared experience that you are enjoying together. But it's also a foretaste 
Because when you arrive at that wedding and get out of the car and join the celebration that's going on with all of your other high school or college friends or whoever it is, as well as people that you've never, ever even met before, then you begin to experience community, fellowship in far, far greater measure. Like I said before, yes, we already have this fellowship. The Holy Spirit has brought us into a community of faith and with it, the sharing of ministry, the sharing of sorrows and joys, the sharings of blessings and burdens. And that certainly is a community and a fellowship worth celebrating. But remember, you're on a road trip. Sojourners together through this life to the celebration that is coming that is unlike anything you can imagine. And in the community of all believers of all time, like just imagine getting to explore the renewed creation alongside Adam and Eve, breaking bread or maybe eating some manna with Moses, singing praises to God alongside King David, maybe using one of the Psalms that King David himself wrote. And all of this hand in hand with your loved ones who have died in the name of the Lord. But there's even more. There's something even greater, something that that trumps all of that. And it's one more reason why we don't need to be bothered by this mystery of the Trinity today. And that's because it won't remain a mystery forever. Paul, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, as he is comparing our knowledge and understanding now compared with our knowledge and understanding then, says this, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. You see, we will not only experience community with people, but with God. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, yet no longer a mystery hidden from our eyes, but one that we will see and that we will know face to face. Final mystery, also solved. Where's my life going? My life, in fact, already belongs in eternal community with the triune God. And so what's left now other than to do exactly what Paul told us to do in verse 11? Brothers and sisters, rejoice. And as you rejoice to continue encouraging one another in this grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serving one another in that agape love of God our Father, as we share this journey together in the name of our Holy Spirit, amen. 